4: Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week, we've crossed the state line into Arkansas and rolled into the tiny, quiet town of Quitman. At first glance, Quitman seems like any other small town in rural America. A handful of stores and restaurants, a school and a post office, large, grassy yards and quiet streets lined with tall trees. With just over 700 people, Quitman's not exactly what you'd call a bustling metropolis, but when Floyd and Aline Bettis moved to Quitman in the early 1950s, the town wasn't even half that size. The home they purchased, right in the heart of town, was plenty big, though. Too big for just the two of them, really. But Floyd and Aline had big plans. They'd moved to Quitman with a purpose. They were going to start a family. But things didn't come as easily as they'd dreamed. Floyd and Aline were good people, hard workers and kind, too. They'd make great parents, everyone said. But despite trying year after year, their luck just refused to turn. Just as despair threatened to tighten its grip, though, it happened. Aline was finally pregnant. The couple was overjoyed and spent nine months excitedly planning for the new addition. Their big home was about to be much less empty. They decorated the baby's room, bought clothes, prepared everything they could to make sure their little one had the happiest, most comfortable life they could provide. The time passed quickly for the Bettises, and before they knew it, Floyd was rushing a line to the hospital, where she gave birth to their new son, Gerald Bettis. By all accounts, Gerald seemed like a normal, healthy baby. He had no health problems, did regular baby things like eat and cry, and, well, all those other things babies do. But as he grew, it became clearer and clearer that Gerald was anything but normal. He seemed detached unemotional. Except for the occasional explosive bout of anger. But that's normal, the Bettises told themselves. All kids can be hard sometimes. But when the parents were out of earshot, others, friends, neighbors, family, would comment there was something a bit strange about Gerald. Something off-putting. Something wrong. He had trouble integrating with his fellow kids, too, and had a flair for the awkward and dramatic. He liked, it seemed, to be the center of attention, and didn't really seem to care how or for what. From a very young age, Gerald had always had a love of animals, cats and dogs especially. Like plenty of kids, he'd bring home strays and plead with his parents to keep them. It was endearing at first. It seemed like genuine caring. And that was something Floyd and Aline were excited to help foster in their son, and not something they'd seen in him a whole lot in other ways. So, from time to time, they'd let him keep animals, allow them to stay in the back room of their home, where Gerald would play with them. It was a habit that didn't go unnoticed by other children, either. A habit that, like kids are so quick to do, earned Gerald a nickname. A nickname that stuck with him to this day. Dog Boy. Now, whether they were willfully blinded by love for their son, or just really blissfully unaware, it became harder and harder to ignore that Gerald's supposed love of animals was actually something much darker and uglier. Neighbors would report hearing the desperate, gut-wrenching cries of injured and dying animals from the back of the Bettis' house. The strays he'd bring home would regularly disappear without a trace, and beloved neighborhood pets began to go missing, their pictures littering mailboxes and light posts. As Gerald entered his teen years, the relationship with his parents began to shift further, too. The boy they'd prayed and worked so hard for that they'd been so excited to bring into the world was becoming stranger, more unfamiliar by the day, more frightening. He had a dark cruelty that seemed to roil within him, a blackness that gleamed sharp daggers within his eyes and a maliciousness that kept his parents and others who knew them in a constant state of unease. Gerald was prone to violent outbursts, which was made particularly terrifying by his huge size. By the time Gerald reached his late teens, he towered over his parents at six foot four and close to three hundred pounds. So when he decided that his parents should stay locked, In the upstairs of their house, there wasn't a whole lot they could do in protest. They were kind, gentle people, and they weren't equipped to fight back, especially against their own son. They'd stay imprisoned in the upstairs of their home, afraid to roam the house or make too much noise. He would feed them, sure, but only what and when he chose and if he was ever in a mood, or if one of his parents dared even give him the whiff of a challenge, oh, there would be hell to pay. His father took the worst of the beatings, and at one point, Gerald even threw him out of the upstairs window, leaving his aging father, then more than seventy, to cling to the gutter until police arrived. This went on for years, the cycle of fear and abuse. And then Floyd died. He had gotten ill at home and passed away, or so the official report said, although it's also been suggested that he died of a broken neck after accidentally tumbling down a flight of stairs. Not long after the death of her husband, a line fell and broke her hip. But despite the pain of the injury, As the ambulance sped her off to the hospital, it was the happiest she'd been in years. She was liberated, finally released from the house, into the relative safety of the hospital. That elation didn't last long, though. Gerald's abuses weren't limited to the home, as it turns out. He would show up to abuse and threaten his mother, even in the confines of her hospital room. But in such a public place, that behavior didn't go unnoticed. And it was enough to finally secure Aline's freedom. She was placed in protective services and never returned to the home or her son. With no one left to care for, Gerald continued his destructive behaviors. He began growing and selling drugs out of the newly constructed sunroom on the back of the house. And it was that along with the abuses reported by his mother that finally led him to being thrown in prison, where he died not long after of a drug overdose. The Bettis House has changed hands a few times, but despite dying in prison, many think Gerald Bettis never truly left his home on Mulberry Street. There's the usual haunted house staples, floating objects, lights that turn on and off by themselves. Toilets that flush on their own, items that mysteriously disappear. And in one incident, while showing the house to a prospective buyer, the recliner in the front room suddenly flipped back, the distinct impression that someone large and heavy had sat down and laid back in it. But the most unsettling of all is the figure, huge and hulking, long dark hair covers its massive form, glowing cat-like eyes that seem to pierce the darkness as it leers malevolently from the windows of the Bettis house. His glare seems to snarl, a hateful challenge, to anyone brave or stupid enough to dare intrude on his property. He's even said to have chased one witness down the darkened street on all fours, slavering fangs, gnashing viciously, at their fleeing form. Dog Boy, it seems, is a nickname Gerald Bettis, has come to embrace in death in a way he was never truly able to in life. Now, let's say we chase down some fiction of our own. Our first story of the evening comes from Ron Pritchard. Ron Pritchard is a longtime journalist who's worked from California to New York and DC and now resides in Seattle. He's a lover of nightmares and a Tomorrowland kid who grew up to wonder when the 21st century is going to live up to the hype. You can read his stories at ronpritchardfiction.com. Children of the night, join me for Ron Pritchard's Squirrels.
2: There was one little corner of the basement window where the cardboard had separated from the glass, the tape not quite holding. The sunlight would bleed through, and you could hold an eye to the crack and see outside. Some days you'd see the squirrels playing on the lawn. They didn't bother with the squirrels. Not enough meat, I guess. Too many bones. I guess they would bother eventually, when they got hungry enough. We would certainly feast if we could figure out a way to trap squirrels. Cassie and me, we were hungry. I'm a teenager, so I'm old enough to know some things are more important than hunger. It's hard to tell that to an eight-year-old, already tiny and getting thinner by the day. At least it was day. Dad said they were nocturnal every time he went out for food, right up till the last time. Mom said, okay, but they are mostly nocturnal. She said it when she started going out. It had taken us ten days to give up hope for Dad. Four more days had passed before she started going, dismissing our begging and our insistence that someone would come to help. It only took three days to realize she was gone, and that no one was coming. No one ever came. At first, we thought whatever had sent them would come. The experts said getting the things here would have taken a lot of intelligence. An intelligent race would do the right thing. They wouldn't want to see the other intelligent creatures eaten. We mattered. Later, mom and dad said the government would come help. Or the military. I mean, someone would come. Because we mattered. I guess when you're older, you need to believe you matter. And that someone will come when you need help. It helps you get through. When you're a kid and you're dealing with bullies or ducking under your desk in active shooter drills, you know that isn't the way things are. Kids are realistic. Adults forget. Or maybe it's a city thing. And when you grow up in the country, like Cass and me, you see things. You know eggs aren't just meant for scrambling. That meat comes from animals someone might have named. You've seen death, poked it with a stick, turned it into food or buried it. You live, you die, the world forgets you. Christ, I'm hungry. I step out into the sun on the once manicured lawn. Dad worked the fields in the barn. That's why he'd gone country and he was okay at it. Mom did the patch of grass in the flower beds in front of the house. Took pride in it. Now the grass was long, and dandelions poked above the green. With each footstep they sent little parachutes out. Clouds of potential life. Mom had fought hard to keep those weeds out of the lawn. Maybe that's why the coming made me think of dandelions. The science types had thought they were asteroids. Big blocky objects bound for earth and fast. They were on all the channels for three or four days with warnings to stock up on food and water. Depending on where they hit, we could see terrible damage. Or worse, they might end it all. But the objects controlled their descent, never knew how. They were organic pods, fleshy, the size of warehouses, and they landed in a dozen places around the world then they bloomed smaller pods that seemed lighter than air floating, traveling miles and miles landing softly Cassie and me we watched cable news over popcorn in those days we watched the pods shimmy and shake eventually the globs split open and they came out at night so they were hard to see fast four-legged, mostly cartilage hard to kill No one ever found them asleep or unguarded. Turned out they could swim, so maybe they slept underwater. They didn't seem to eat fish or anything small. Just people. Maybe animals bigger than people, but I never saw that. They left most green things green. They ate the top of the food chain. Maybe they left the rest for whatever would follow them. I try to move in bursts. Tree to tree, building to car, whatever. Finally, get in Dad's old Jeep Laredo. Hot inside after sitting in the sun for days. A leathery smell. His cologne. Always kept the keys under the visor. I'd taken it out a couple of years before, at 14. Karen had wanted to go to the river. It was hot and she wore just shorts and a bikini top. That was going somewhere. But someone saw the rig parked on the highway and called Dad. I remember he said he couldn't afford to give the car to me when I got my license, but I could take it to prom and then have it for graduation. Give that girl another ride, he laughed. Never did get that license. Won't get a prom. And I wonder if there are any girls my age left. Hard to start. Noise. Movement. Being out of hiding was dangerous, but town was a mile away and walking would be riskier. Walking, I'd be exposed. They say you don't see or hear them coming. Of course, I'm not sure who'd lived through it to say what you see or hear. I look in the rear view out of habit, and because I'm imagining them, maybe in the back seat, between the heat and the fear the back of my neck is soaked. It could be their slobber. I steer slowly through a couple of accident sites before I get to town. Pretty eerie, but very quiet. At least we don't see bodies anymore. Just long white sticks of calcium stripped clean and sometimes marked with grooves left by incisors. Bones. I go into Jim's drugstore and mercantile. It's dark when you get away from the big windows in front. Low ceiling, steel shelving, mostly picked clean, like the bones. My head into the back, rummage through the packing boxes, come up with a box of granola bars buried deep in the cupboard. There are a few cans of soup, which is good. They last almost forever. The last human will die a few days after he sips the last spoonful of Campbell's tomato. I see the curtained off area. Mom had never let me go back there, and it was embarrassing to try. The signs still said, 18 and older only. But what the hell? No way to play the videos. There are magazines I could, well, use. You stuff a couple under my shirt to take with me. I remember my dad, and maybe the pastor, saying it was a big deal when they were kids to hide a playboy in your room. Then I hear it. Scuffling outside. Then a crunching noise. And a crash. An easy step that upsets a row of shelves. Inside now. And the smell. I remember camping once with Dad. And we ran across a badger that had been dead for a few days, ripe with musk and a sour milk smell. It was like that. I peer out through the curtain, mostly shadow, broad shoulders and a head like a buffalo, the skin clattering as it moves like an insect from a horror movie. I have nowhere to go. Is this how it ends, my punishment for just planning to sin? I thought they said it just made you go blind. Then it's gone. Outside. I wait. Listen. It hovers out there for a while. I hear sounds. Well, they're terrible. Then a scream. Then gone. I walk outside into the setting sun. She's in a pile, crying. She'd followed me. Seen it. She's shivering. I put my hand onto her head. First, just to check. Wet, but not with blood. A viscous saliva. She looks up. Her shirt is torn. There are scratch marks along her biceps where the white sleeve ends. It's okay, I told her. You're okay. It had hunted her, but it had left her alive. Why? And then it comes to me. I sense it without sensing. It's close. I just know. It's waiting for me. It planned this. She was better for bait than a meal. Too many bones, not enough meat.
4: That was Ron Pritchard's Squirrels, as read by Matt Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at Mattomcfly. Thank you, Matt.
3: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
4: Our second story is one of three 2019 Stoker Award nominees we'll be sharing with you over the coming weeks. This one comes to us from Kyla Ward. A resident of Sydney, Australia, Kyla Lee Ward has written short fiction, articles, and poetry, including Stoker, Dittmar, and Reisling nominees, and won one third of an Aurealis Award for the novel Prismatic, co written with David Carroll and Evan Pallacius. Her second collection of dark and fantastic poetry and fable, The Macabre Modern and Other Morbidities, will be released this coming August an actor in Sydney's only Grand Guignol Theatre, and occasionally playwright, she has travelled widely and rhymed adventurously. More generally, her interests include history, occultism, and scaring innocent bystanders, all of which combine in this tale. The first paragraph of And In Her Eyes the City Drowned was written as her coach pulled away from the Ferrovia Vaporetto station concluding a visit to the city of venice that was as memorable as it was extraordinary if not for quite the same reasons as herein children of the night join me for kyla wards stoker award nominated and in her eyes the city drowned first published in weird book number 39 from wildside press
0: I came to Venice in June. As the brilliant days collapsed slowly into August, I began to hear. Then I began to see. Now I'm scared, to the point of actually shaking, that the woman will appear tonight in the mouth of the Calais de Pignoli. At first, I was as arch-dazzled and spire-smacked as everyone else. Marty calls it the Venetian brain freeze like you've just guzzled a massive gelato flavoured with sunshine, marble, and brine, flecked with gold like the glassmakers do their goblets and bowls. Fresh off the water taxi, that's exactly what the tourists go for, gelati or glass. Then, after staggering around the Piazza San Marco, gawking at the basilica and the bell tower and the clock where the bronze man strikes the hour on a bell, they collapse into chairs outside the doge's cafe and listen to us. Cameron Kesey is a name nobody has heard of. That's because Marty and I are refugees from the culture drought currently afflicting Sydney, Australia. Marty plays clarinet, though he prefers the tenor sax. I play keyboards, which here means a top-of-the-line Yamaha on grand piano setting. A sweet platform like this has a vast menu of voices and can handle even more exotic uploads, as well as multiple tracks. It can channel woodwind, strings, or a full choir. It can construct octaves from the sound of breaking glass. But for two months now, it's been stuck on grand piano. Our cellist is Lise, who usually plays in a Czech goth metal band, and the violinist is Soho Stevie, who patched this outfit together in London last winter. God knows, summer in Italy sounded like a good idea, and I don't know, I had this fantasy Venice might inspire me to write my breakout piece. The history of music, of all the arts, is full of people travelling to Venice and creating masterpieces, and I am classically trained. So now we are the Doge's house band, one of two old Cavanato has engaged for the season. The other group are local, and they play twelve to two, four to six. We get two to four, and six to eight and nine every day, excepting the occasional appearance of special guests, and every single night. But none of them see the woman. When I mentioned her to the others, Stevie said I was crazy, that even if this phantom is into skinny gingers of her own gender, nobody ever goes for the keyboardist. As a violinist, he would say that, and believe it too. Marty said, we were all a little crazy by this point, that anyone would go crazy after the 5,000th repetition of Speak Softly Love, Santa Lucia, and That's Amore... And this is true, but I cherish a special hatred for K sarah sarah. It's not just the whiny, seesaw melody. It's the attitude. What kind of teacher, what kind of parents tell a kid that it's not worth trying? The short answer, mine. My mother, pushing me to practice and gain grades all the way through school, and then fully expecting me to pack music away in the box where she keeps my pretty ponies. My father refusing to pay for my ongoing tuition, let alone my equipment, and going apeshit when I persevered, threatening to throw me out of the house if I didn't attend interviews at this friend's insurance firm and that friend's real estate office right up to the day I flew out. Now he's getting drunk over the barbecue back in Cherrybrook and telling those friends that I'm begging on the streets. I didn't tell him about Venice, why would I? He'd be saying that if I was headlining at Scala. Here's the routine. At 1pm, we eat our panini in the kitchen. Marty and Steve change into black suit and tie. Lise and myself wear little black dresses with subdued makeup and no visible piercings. Our outfits are laundered and pressed between every shift, which is a blessing. Our first time all dressed up, Marty and I took photos for his parents. I stared at my image, thinking that the dress made me slim rather than skinny, tall rather than a beanpole. "'that even my stringy red hair approached the glamour required "'for album sleeves and foyer photographs. "'Then Marty said, "'Cam, you're going to make one hell of a waitress. "'I told him he looked like a monkey. "'But once we're on stage, out the front of the cafe, "'there's no danger of being asked to get some tourist "'a proper cup of tea, please, not that lukewarm yellow stuff. "'The chairs and tables are spread out across the cobblestones and acres, "'whole acres away,' We can glimpse, like a reflection, another set of chairs and another stage fronting another cafe. Cafes surround the piazza as completely as the marble arches. There are three levels of these arches, all white, all columned, on every side except for the insanely intricate facade of the basilica, which is comprised of every colour of marble except white. From two to four we play, with short breaks between the scheduled coach parties. To mix things up, We sometimes add the barcarolle from Le Cant d'Offman, which is partially set in Venice and variations on the theme of a certain secret agent who keeps trashing the place. If Giuliano's on shift, he puts vodka in our water. We drink espresso in the back alley and play cards, and at six, we're back up there. Gradually, the light softens as though the gelato is melting, running through the cracks between the cobbles, mingling with dirty water and spilled wine. The crowds roaming around the square thin out, though the chairs are still full. Then, as the sky cools toward a soft indigo, the lamps come on—huge, branching, glass and wrought iron things that, at any other place, would be restricted to ballrooms. I haven't seen anyone dance in the Piazza San Marco, but then Carnival kind of is in February. The only masks I've seen worn have been cute, glittering things on children the occasional plague doctor on some guy who has contrived, despite Venetian prices, to get drunk. As the lamps come on, sharpening the shadows and blanking out the sky, it begins. The first thing I hear is a medley of the other bands, who are all playing the same things as us, but on different cycles. It's maddening. I have always been unusually receptive to the sound of places, to their voice, if you like. It was one of the things that made me realise I was a musician. After the medley comes, The sounds of the audience, the coughing, the scrape of the chair legs, the painful shifting of old bodies, the hiss of glass globes heating, and a stray breeze dragging its fingernails along the carnades. I hear wood creaking, stone grinding, and the lapping of dark, dark water. And these are the things that conjure her from the shadows beside the clock tower, with her mask-like face, her long and flowing hair. I could not say when was the first time I noticed her there, part and parcel with the darkness, the sea and the stone. But I do know that having done so, I cannot stop. She seems to listen to us, and us alone, raptly, intently, though God knows there's nothing separating our performances from all the others. All her attention is directed toward the stage, and I have come to realise towards me. Why is this terrifying? Because no one else sees her. Because she seems, night by night, to be drawing nearer. Yet I never see her move. I sit at the keyboard in my black dress, back straight and hands in position, and play. She stands and listens. And we continue like that until the bronze man has whacked his bell eight times, or as long as it takes the tables to clear, then I'm off the stage and into the water taxi with the others, and back to the hostel at the rail terminal. Not even Venetians stay the night in Venice. At the hostel, some of the terror fades. We eat Chinese or Mexican, turn on the soccer, and zone out, while Lise skypes a boyfriend back in Prague. She leans her cello against the table and plucks out little tremolos as they discuss lyrics like in the catacombs of alchemy, love lives bottled. Or else it will be Stevie, I can hear, in the background, chatting up another of his universal contacts, hustling for the next gig, the one that's sure to be our big break. We've got auditions, he's promised, for a new supper club the instant we're back in London. Or was it in Helsinki? Or Lucerne? We'll be a trio anyway, because Alchemistiku is heading to some massive goth fest in Germany. I have no one to Skype. I left my useless boyfriend in Sydney twice over. Usually I talk things through with Marty, but he's been monosyllabic since Stevie played the never-with-another-band-member card on him. I think that, in his own way, he's afraid as well. Maybe at the root. It's because this place where we're living is sinking slowly into the sea. Cavanato says that for the past few years... The winter tides have rolled over the very spot where we play. We used to rehearse in the mornings, experimenting and improvising. Sometimes Lise would fit an amp to her cello and I'd play samples from my laptop, looping the sound of steps, passing through an arcade, into a rhythm track, turning the cooing of pigeons into notes and otherwise annoying the crap out of Stevie. I started recording samples the moment I arrived, because that's what I do. I use a handheld digital recorder with inbuilt stereo microphone and good compression rates that loads straight into my DAW. The whole setup is last-gen, but it served me from the time I started handing in experimental pieces to my composition tutor, and it's not like I can afford to upgrade. You can call it synth-pop, electronic fusion, musique concrète, or a dozen other things, and yes, at its most rudimentary, it is playing secret agent themes in pigeon voice, but... With just a little imagination, you can conjure a bass line from the crackling of a bonfire, lift a melody out of the sounds of a train journey, and much, much more. One day, I successfully captured the voice of a motorboat tearing down the Grand Canal, lashing the deep, green water to a dirty white. The wake scrapes the ancient stonework like a knife. I got the voice of a glassblower's kiln leaning through the doorway of his shadowed workshop. Lise likes that one. She says it's what hell would sound like approaching the gate. Over these past two months, I have captured all the sounds of hissing, creaking and lapping, and filed them away. But the rehearsals faltered, then stopped, as the World Cup reached the finals and the humidity increased. So this morning, I did what anyone I told about my secret fear would surely have recommended. I walked down the Grand Canal to the Piazza San Marco and approached the Calais de Pignoli in broad daylight. I had half-packed the night before, had been ready to desert the others, and break my contract by jumping on a train back to London. Only what that really meant was a plane back to Sydney, and what that really meant was I wasn't a musician at all. Not even one who worked the tourist circuit while trying to develop her own sound. To find people to share it with. God knows, as a keyboardist with tits, that's always been doubly difficult for me. This was my second summer only my second of hostels cafes and playlists that were my own opinion of what hell sounded like could i have really burnt out so quickly it was another perfect venetian day with cobalt in the sky and copper in the water stall holders lined the bank sprooking their masks and t-shirts in a polyglottal din the gondola companies fought for space adding a layer of splashes and shouts as i passed into the piazza Hughes shuffled from the arcade of the Doge's Palace and into the Basilica door, where a whole new theatre of echoes awaited. The Calais de Pignoli was packed with people in T-shirts, fresh from the rack, balancing smartphones and dripping gelati as a diminutive local woman herded them along with a tinseled cane. My gaze snaked up the tottering towers of brick, the cream and ochre facades that made the place a winding canyon. I was hoping to see a votive Madonna or decadent Caryatid that might catch the lamplight by night. Instead, I saw shuttered windows and red geraniums blooming on ornamental balconies. Nor did any dummies in Carnivale costumes stand outside any of the shops, which was another possibility that had occurred to me. Engulfed by shuffling, snapping, and cries of Rapidamente, I passed the furthest point I could possibly see from the stage, and a bridge over a canal appeared, with no more fuss than an alley in London or Sydney. I escaped the crush to stand at the crown, peering over the water, at the gondolas winding yet further inwards. I could hear the strains of Santa Lucia, hollowed by the stone and diluted by the clucking and lapping. The passage of the slim, black boats struck me as percussion. I set my recorder going, and leaned out of the rail of the bridge, "'inhaling sour green and listening, listening. "'Whatever Byron may have heard on the Rio Zulian "'when he gave its bridge its popular name, "'I heard no sighs here. "'Instead, the echoes of the gondola's passage below me "'and the omnipresent roar of the crowd "'came to resemble groaning, "'as though the speed of the playback was slowed right down. "'The water sounds were all combined in weeping, "'as clearly as I ever heard my mother through the bedroom door.' Through the same spectral engineering, the gondolier's pleasant tenor voice accelerated into a wail that scraped my skin. In my bones I felt other sounds, pitches and vibrations, trailing off the oral scale, but still a part of this, this symphony. It was impossibly vast, inconceivably deep, and both a part of what I heard at night, and as far beyond it as the development from the exposition, or even an entire new movement. Then I saw that the wall across the canal had crumbled away. For all I knew, it had happened as I stood there, the tourists passing as oblivious to me as they were to paint curling, bricks splitting, sloughing away to reveal carious timber bones. Whatever the case, the gap running down to the water was now a good metre wide. The music was pouring from a gate to hell like nothing I, nor Lise had ever imagined. I could see everything, though the cyst beyond was as dark as the day was bright. Could see because I could hear. Synesthesia is supposed to be beautiful, sensual, like stroking velvet with your ears, and music pouring down your throat like honey. But I could hear the stairs, plunging from the floor above into utter blackness. A humming stagnancy lay there, devouring the blood-red walls, whose tops still showed gilded wreaths of laurel, but descending. The garlands became beards of algae, thickening into a talus of black slime. Salt extrusions swarmed to the plaster like maggots. I couldn't breathe, couldn't move. My heart was beating, but it didn't keep my body's time. I felt intrusive, culpable. This wasn't something to be seen, by me least of all. And in the deepest part of it, where nothing could possibly exist, a ruinous, black cowed thing was reaching out. I heard it say my name. I fled the bridge, then completely at random. I pushed through the streets, where the crowd swore at me in the lyrics of pop songs. The next moment, I was crossing a plaza whose only occupants were the pigeons I had chased with my recorder, splashing under the perpetually dribbling pumps. But as hard as I ran, the sounds stayed with me, as if each step I took was down those stairs, hurtling toward the darkness. Finally, I found myself running down another canyon-like street toward a burgeoning roar. I thought of a tsunami, swelling out of the sea, to wipe the horror away. I burst out into the throngs of Piazza San Marco, and here, finally, the dreadful chorus dissolved into the din. I had been recording the entire time. When, eventually, I played back just a portion, all I heard was lapping, clucking, and Santa Lucia giving away to O Solo Mio. Synesthesia is supposed to be beautiful, but schizophrenics hear voices and see horror in the most ordinary things. I cornered Cavanato before the start of shift and described in muted terms the place I had found. I asked him what it was. He scrutinized me for a moment, then said, Any of a hundred bars. So I asked Giuliano, and he told me about the pilings. When the merchant princes raised their palaces, they first sank pilings into the soggy soil. Whole trunks of trees were roughly planed, embalmed in pitch, and sent splashing. "'into the groundwater at the bottom of narrow shafts. "'Then they sealed the shafts with marble. "'There's no air down there,' Giuliano told me, "'stubbing out his cigarette on the doge's back step. "'So, they don't rot. "'They all go stony like bodies in bogs. "'When the water started coming over San Marco in the winter, "'the pavement started shifting. "'Some of the shafts opened. "'The air got in and the piling started to rot. "'All the buildings, you see.' "'Leaning against each other with cracks in their faces. "'That's what's happening inside. "'Some places the pilings are rising.' "'He actually shuddered, though the air was as hot as smoke. "'What did you hear?' I whispered. "'He shrugged, flicking his neat brown cowslick, and smiled. "'He routinely charms jet-lagged Americans "'who just want a real coffee, for Christ's sake, with that smile. "'Then he asked why I was asking.' And I couldn't even speak. Couldn't say, "'Because I hear what I should not hear, "'and I see what I should not see, "'and her eyes never leave me, "'not when the customers pass between us, "'not when the music stops, "'and we reach for our glasses. "'Do you see her? "'Do you hear her? "'Do you just ignore her screaming day after day?' That was this morning, which the clocks assure me was mere hours ago. Now it is night. Now I am back here on this stage, and as K Serra Serra seeps from the Café Florian into our roll, I feel sick. My stomach is cramping. I haven't drunk enough. Or maybe I've already drunk too much. Is Giuliano on tonight, or is it that other waiter with the bad bleach job? A nudge at my elbow. Marty's eyes are bulging over his puffed cheeks and mouthpiece. We're both still playing, fingers dancing across our respective instruments, but now I realise there's something wrong. Oh, dear God, I'm playing quesadah-sadah. A few bridging chords and I'm back into the Barker roll. The audience hasn't noticed. The silver, white, and artificially red heads are swaying, and one woman is flapping her lips along to the melody. The men sit grey, stout and unmoved, for the most part, waiting for their drinks, although an elderly gay couple are holding hands and getting misty-eyed toward the back. You can see that they've always dreamed of seeing Venice. And then, without warning, I see her. At the mouth of the street, I see the unwhite pallor of her face. Whatever she wears is as amorphous as her hair, absorbing too much light to be black alone. My stomach twists into a knot of wrought iron, but I keep on playing. I cannot stop. It's just not fair. Venice was supposed to inspire me, to give me a way out of my own private pit. I should never have come here. My parents knew that I'm not a real musician. All my tutors, they knew I was just someone who stands outside of a cafe playing That's Amore. Just as I used to stand up on the steps of the Sydney Town Hall, mixing birdsong into waltzing Matilda, busking to get the money to undertake my next grading. To buy my recorder and DAW. To save up the fare to Europe, where all my dreams would come true. Lise catches my eye this time, with just a flicker of a smile. When you're down by the sea and a an eel bites your knee, that's amore, she mimes. Something else from our rehearsals. I try to smile back, but water leaks down my cheeks and stones grind in my stomach. Another few cycles of that seasick riff and it'll be case sera, sera and I'll know that I'll look and I'll see her, and this time I'll break down and scream and scream and I won't be able to stop. No, no, I won't. I may be going schizoid, or synesthetic, or home, but first I'm going to show that woman, whatever she may be, what I'm worth. I'm going to show all these people, the deaf and the blind, what Venice truly is, and I'm going to do it as only I can. I don't remember cabling my recorder into the Yamaha, or fiddling with its programming. Seems like I may have been doing it night after night, a little at a time, so that the local band wouldn't notice the difference and blab to Kevin Seems like I've uploaded some of the files from this morning, as well as from our rehearsals, and one or two from a commercial FX site, creating a set of voices I can play just as easily as grand piano. In any case, everything is now prepared. As Marty performs his opening flourish, a flurry of notes he is rightfully proud of, in the very instant that the front row begins to sway and smile, I bring up a voice I've labelled Canal Funk. For the moment, I'm still playing my part but in notes of stone and water. Marty's face goes macaque red. He repeats the flourish, darting glances at Stevie and mouthing at me to wake up, but it's too late. The worst song in the world is already dissolving as O oh solomio dissolved beneath the bridge. I glissade pigeons, I hiss like lamps, and then, in an ascending choral progression, I shatter glass. Marty is frozen the clarinet dangling from his neck strap. The violin and the cello are faltering, and the faces in the front row are starting to whisper. Then I hear a low and resonant thrumming. It's Lise, and I'm damned if she isn't doing her best to sound like a glassblower's kiln. Gladly, I bring up the effect for her, easing the cello into the mix. A moment later, even as the violin ceases completely, the clarinet joins in with an uneasy tremolo. I flick the rhythm track over to gondola percussion. Music without a name comes leaping and swirling into the Piazza San Marco, washing everything else away. Like a tsunami, like a real band is playing. I started the improvisation, so it's up to me to set the pace, gathering the contributions of my bandmates into the overall structure. I keep it classical. Now that the exposition is through, I develop the basic theme with... Basso sucking and treble weeping. Then, as the clarinet begins to wail, I marry it to the sound of the screaming. As Lisa's elbow thrusts like a piston, I bring up the groaning, and yes, this is it. I have recreated what I hear, and now so can they. I see it in their eyes. I've brought them, not the whole symphony, but at least this fragment— i brought it to them, here and now, in front of the Doge's cafe, and they cannot ignore it. Nor, it seems, can Venice itself. As though I have hit that one sympathetic pitch which can bring down bridges. The towers around us are shaking, the arches are rocking, and water slap-dancing in the canals. In the crumbling palaces, every empty chamber resounds like a violin's bout. There's no one can ignore this. For a moment... The piazza is La Scala, it's the Albert Hall and the Opera House, and stages all over the world. The bronze bell is chiming, and I am performing in Venice. There's only so long we can sustain it, especially with Stevie standing there like the death of Paganini. Lise begins to recapitulate, and I follow, returning once more to my stone-water melody, allowing the worst song to reappear briefly before the motorboat, scything up the bank, devours it all. Rapidamente! Rapidamente! As I let the crowd's sound trail out, I hear scattered applause. And bravo! Giuliano is standing there with his mouth hanging open, the couple at the back are the ones cheering, along with the old woman who was singing before. The rest of the audience just sit there, staring. You bloody idiot, hisses Steve. But for the first time in months, I feel alive. For the first time ever, maybe. I'm not just hoping I can make it. I know. Then she is there. Between me and the audience rises a wall of darkness and cold. I breathe stagnant black as she reaches out with her salted, crusted hand. Her mask is marble, blue and grey, and in the crumbling sockets of her eyes, And in her eyes are dancing sparks, particles of gold, as the glass is flecked with gold, as her gown is brocaded in every possible colour, and every one a sound that the symphony weaves together. In that moment, a future coalesces before me. I see myself shouting at Cavanato and Stevie, refusing to apologise, in a midnight train journey to a place I have never been. But then... I am on another stage, with Marty, Lise, and Stanis, facing a sea of black shoulders and white faces, all roaring, roaring for us. I see the downloads page crashing under the demand, the single and the first EP. I see red hair splashed across black and white photos, close-ups of my hands on the keys, webzines giving way to glossy print, stage after stage, audience after audience, and then the first album, with its title track and cover of a drowned city. The nightclubs and festival tents give way to auditoriums and amphitheaters. The audiences wear gowns and suits. Their faces change color again and again. We play reflected in water. As each scene shifts, I know I am in a place called Venice. Little Venice, Venice of the North, Venice Beach, Venice of the East. There seems no end to them in London, in Amsterdam, Los Angeles, Suzhou. To each of them I bring the sounds, and in each of them I make recordings, attempting hybrids, seeing what traits will carry through, seeing if the sounds will take. As album follows album, each encompassing more of the symphony, I understand how a city can survive collapse, how its essential soul can escape and flourish anew, only when given the right foundation. I see myself sinking, friends and helpers, managers and lovers, dragged down by my obsession. Lise, Stannis, and even Maria stripped and blackened, descended into illness, madness, and shame. I feel their pain, hear their screaming, as all, at last, are buried. And I am buried, too, As I slide down into my final resting place, the water thick and black and chill, the echoes boom from above and my shaft is sealed. I see it all, and I reach out, and as her fingers crumble in my grasp, I feel sparks beginning to dance in my blood. The wall is gone. I face my first audience, sitting and waiting for someone to take them in hand. I shoulder past Stevie and seize the mic. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us tonight. We are The Pilings, and I hope you enjoy what's coming.
4: That was Kyla Ward's Stoker Award-nominated, and in her eyes, the city drowned. Read to you by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. You can follow Emily on Twitter at EKCStrand, or check out her website when it's launched later this summer at emilystrand.com. Thank you, Emily. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you enjoyed what you heard this evening, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It makes all the difference allowing us to bring you these terrifying tales week after week. Also, give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we seep into your mind with more Tales to Terrify.